0: Good morning and uh, welcome. Thank you for uh, joining us this morning to answer the question, can we end end poverty? Uh, We very much appreciate your uh, participation. I also want to specifically acknowledge uh, Ken and Freda Levy Levy, who made this possible both with their financial support and equally important with their energy and we thank them very much for that. Thanks for Columbia for letting us be here. Yes, thanks. And also the Doe Fund, which we are uh, coordinating with. We've got a great group of both speakers and panelists, and I thank them for their participation. It's going to be a very, very interesting conversation. I've got a few opening comments to make. Before I do that, I've been handed logistics, and I will forget these, so I'm going to go ahead and tell you. you. Please join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag uh, poverty fix, P-O-V-E-R-T-Y-F-I-X. The bathrooms are located to your left, my right, over there, and there's free Wi-Fi in the room. Um, we have a uh, number of Cato sponsors here, and I thank you for your support. Your support makes our organization possible, uh, the work we do possible, and I thank you very much. However, most of the participants and the people coming today are not Cato sponsors. So I thought I would tell you a little bit about Cato because there's a lot of misperceptions about what our organization is about. Cato is uh, one of the world's leading libertarian think tanks. Our mission is to create a free and prosperous society based on the principles of individual liberty, free markets, limited government, and peace. We genuinely believe in limited government. We think the government ought to stay out of your pocketbook, but we also think it ought to stay out of your bedroom. We think the government has a very important, but a very limited role. That very important role is to protect individual rights. It's to keep me from using force of fraud to take what you've earned, and to keep you from using force of fraud to take what I've earned. Uh, In that context, we think government has three fundamental roles. One is to protect us from bad guys overseas, to have a strong national defense, not to make the world safe for democracy or to cure all the world's problems, but to protect us from bad guys overseas. We also think that we need a strong police force to protect us from bad guys in our neighborhood, but we don't think every local community needs armored cars. Uh, We don't think that's necessary. We also believe that we need a very strong and effective, efficient court system to settle legitimate disputes so we don't have to resort to violence. In our world, if we can design it, we'd have 95% less regulations and dramatically more efficient court systems. The reason that we think government (coughs) needs to be limited is that it has a unique power. It has the power to initiate the use of force. It has a gun. Walmart can try to convince you to come and buy their products, but they can't make it. The government can make you, they can take your property, they can put you in jail, they can kill you. In fact, throughout history, (coughs) governments uh, are next to old age and disease in killing people. Governments have killed hundreds of millions of people throughout history. That is fundamentally why government has to be constrained. And also, and related very much to this conference, we believe, (coughs) and you can think about your own personal experience. That voluntary human relationships, where we choose relationships, have dramatically better outcomes than any kind of relationship based on force. And government is, by definition, force. That's what it's about. So when government is involved, force is involved. And that we believe that always sub-optimizes the outcome. I'll tell you a little personal story that relates to what we're doing today from my own Perspective. Before I came to Cato, I spent most of my career in the banking business, and I started in a little tiny uh, community where we, we, my, my bank was a farm bank, it was a very traditional kind of community farm bank, and we were involved in everything, trying to make the community better. That was part of what we did, and I got put on the board of a handicap workshop for people that were both mentally and physically handicapped in this town. And the handicap workshop, I found out when I got there, wasn't doing very well. In fact, it was really having a lot of problems. Fortunately, we were able to turn that workshop around, and it's still here, and it's still doing good work. But it was an incredible education experience to me. The first thing I found out was about how, in the community, faced with that situation, it was pretty easy to raise money for that purpose. We went to a lot of people, and they said, gee, we can't have this handicap workshop go out of business. Uh, Very easy to raise money. I uh, um, also had another experience uh, observing those handicapped people and how important the work was to them, that they wanted to have some ownership of their lives. They wanted to be responsible. They wanted to be productive. And those paychecks, which weren't a lot of money really, were very important to them, that sense of self-ownership that sense of self-control. And this was all done voluntarily at that time. It was a long time ago. There was no government support, no government funding. And yet the community saved that workshop, and those individuals got a lot out of that work. And interestingly enough, in retrospect, I think some of those handicapped people, even the, the mentally handicapped, I would rate them extremely high on the integrity scale. They were focused on doing the best they could with the talents they had. And I personally found that pretty inspirational uh, and very powerful. And it taught me that having control and personal responsibility for your life is a very important thing. Um, As libertarians, uh, we at Cato are primarily in the liberty business. Liberty is our our mantra. Uh, Most people are for liberty, but many people don't understand how important liberty really is. We believe that liberty is essential for physical well-being in the economic sense, but more important, it's essential for spiritual well-being. In the economic sense of the word, in order to be productive, an individual must be able to think for themselves. They must be able to pursue their truth as they see it. Unfortunately, government rules and regulations often make people act like 2 plus 2 is 5. And if someone makes you act like 2 plus 2 is 5, you literally cannot think. In addition, all progress is based on innovation, it's based on creativity. Because unless somebody does something better, there can be no progress. Innovation and creativity is only possible to an independent thinker. Somebody that thinks like the crowd cannot be innovative, cannot be creative, cannot contribute to human progress. That is why entrepreneurs are so important, and Cato is primarily funded and supported by people that have entrepreneurial interest. Entrepreneurs take the ideas of scientists, engineers, academics, and they turn them into reality. Without entrepreneurship, there's literally no human progress. And what characterizes entrepreneurs? They are innovators, they are creative, they are very much about experimentation. For every Google, there's a thousand failed Googles. For every Walmart, there are 10,000 failed Walmarts. And very few entrepreneurs hadn't failed in some aspect of their lives. And to be an experimenter, you have to be able to think for yourself, and you have to be free to pursue the truth as you know it. And that truth is often different than what the rest of the world thinks or what some bureaucrat is going to think. So freedom allows entrepreneurship. It allows innovation. It allows creativity, and that leads to human progress. We published a book last year called Poverty and Progress, progress, that looked at human well-being from time immortal. And interestingly enough, from the evolution of man 250,000 years ago to the late 1700s, human life expectancy basically remained flat. There was some improvement in the quality of life, but life expectancy remained flat. And then something happened in the late 1700s that transformed life in uh, Western civilization birth in terms of life expectancy and quality and now it's transforming life on the whole planet. It was an innovation in the late 1700s. Uh, it was more important than fire. It was more important than the wheel. And innovation was the creation of the rule of law, of individual rights, of free markets, of something called capitalism. And capitalism led to radically well improvements in well-being now on the whole planet. Because people were free to innovate, be creative, and explore different ideas uh, that the average guy didn't understand. In addition to being critical for human physical well-being, we believe that uh, freedom, that liberty is essential for spiritual well-being in the context of the pursuit of happiness. When I talk about the pursuit of happiness, I'm not talking about uh, having a good time on Friday night, although it's good to have a good time on Friday night. But I'm talking about happiness in the Aristotelian sense of a life well-lived. Blood, sweat, and tears happiness. In order to pursue happiness in that context, you have to be able to have goals for yourself and to pursue those goals and values based on your beliefs, your ideas. You can't be entitled to be happy. And unless you take responsibility for your life, you cannot pursue happiness in that deepest sense of the word. Being free doesn't guarantee you're going to be happy, but if you aren't free guarantees you can't be happy because you can't live life on your own terms based on your beliefs and your values. So freedom, liberty is essential for physical well-being and it's essential for spiritual well-being. Now I'll close with one kind of context about happiness. The foundation for happiness is real self-esteem. And real self-esteem has to be earned. Real self-esteem comes from having self-confidence in your ability to live and be successful given the facts of reality. So you earn self-esteem from how you live your life. Nobody can give you self-esteem. You can't give your children self-esteem. Self-esteem has to be earned. Live your life with integrity. Raise your self-esteem. Interestingly enough, uh, the single biggest driver of self-esteem for most people and everybody in this room is your work. Because you spend a disproportionate amount of time, effort, and energy at work. Uh, And I mean work in the broadest context, raising children. Very productive, very hard work. However you define your work, your work determines your self-esteem, and that's what makes work so important. When I was running the bank, it was called BB&T, something I said to our employees multiple times over the years. It's real important to BB&T that you do your job well, but it's far, far, far more important to you. You might fool me about how well you do your job. You might fool your boss about how well you do your job, but you'll never fool you. If you don't do your work, the best you can do it, give them your level of skill, give them your level of knowledge, can't do the impossible. If you don't do your work the best you can possibly do it, you will lower your self-esteem. The good news is the flip is true. Do your work the best you can possibly do it. Give them your level of skill, give them your level of knowledge, and you'll raise your self-esteem. Which is more important than how much money you get or where you get a promotion because it's about your character. And I saw that even in those handicapped workers. Doing their work the best they could do, raise their self-esteem and improve their character. And I think there's actually a social implication to that that, that I'm interested in. Uh, take a, uh, a construction worker, bricklayer. Has a tough, hard life. Tough, grinding, hard life. My granddad had a life like that. He has a tough, hard, grinding life, but he and his wife successfully raised their children Maybe his granddaughter becomes CEO of a publicly traded company, maybe not. He has a tough, hard life, but he gets something very precious from his work. He gets to be proud of himself. He gets self-esteem. Take that same bricklayer and give him welfare. He may be better off financially, but he loses something really important. He loses his pride. He loses part of his self-esteem. There's a lot of discussion in Washington today about how the government can provide us with security. I think it's a false discussion because I want to ignore a lot of the rules of reality, but that's anyway. Even if we're true, and even though Americans care about security, this is really not the land of security. The United States is the land of opportunity. People didn't get on a boat and come to Jamestown to be secure. The United States is a land of opportunity. Opportunity to be great, opportunity to fail and try again, but most importantly, the opportunity of that bricklayer to live life on its own terms to pursue his personal happiness based on his beliefs and his values as a free and independent person. And that's what caused people to come to America. That's what made America great. And that American sense of life is part of what I think we're about at Cato, inspiring people to pursue the best within them. And I think that's really important work. And I think that's in the context of what we're talking about today. So thank you for being here. And thank you for listening very much. Thanks. It's now my pleasure to introduce our keynote speaker today. This is a real honor. Uh, uh, John uh, McWorster is Associate Professor of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University. He teaches linguistics, Western Civilization, and American Studies. He's a regular columnist in Time and has also been contributing to Editor of the New Republic, the Root.com, the City Journal, and a regular columnist in the New York Sun, the New York Daily News, and the Daily Beast. His academic specialty is language change and language contact. He's author of a, a number of books in regards to language, including The Power of Babel, The, the Great degradation of Language and Music in America, and Why We Should Like and Care, and Our, mani- our Magnificent Bastard Tongue. Um, he's also uh, uh, released 36 lectures for, on audiovisual for the teaching company, Including the story of human language, the science of language, myth, lies, and half truths of language, uses in 2012, and language from A to Z. Uh, Beyond his work in logistics, he's one of the major voices today in the national conversation about race and culture. He's the author of Losing the Race, Authentically Black, Winning the Race, and uh, a number of other books. He's also uh, uh, been uh, written on race and culture in every major newspaper and a magazine in America, including Time, The New York Times, The Washington Post, the Ebony, The Wall Street Journal, and The Los Angeles Times. He appears widely on radio and television, including appearances on Meet the Press, Dateline, NBC, Good Morning America, The Colburn Report, and he's done a number of NPR, All Things Considered. Quite an impressive resume. We're lucky to have John here. John, thank you for being
1: Thank you, John, and thank you to the Cato Institute for having me here this morning. I want to talk about strategies to counteract black poverty, and I needed to be very clear what I want to do in the short time that I am necessarily allotted here. My days as an actual think tank employee, which was at the Manhattan Institute, are past now. For about the past five years, my primary life has been here at Columbia Teaching. However, I am still in the fight, and it's gotten to the point, much to my surprise, that I have been commenting, if one wants to call it that, on race in America with a particular interest in poverty for 15 years now. And so I've seen certain arcs and there are certain things that I've seen seem to really be keys to the problem as opposed to static. And I want to share with you what those three things appear to me to be because they strike me as things which if changed would radically change the degree and nature of poverty for black American people, not to mention people in general in this country. However, something must be clear especially given that in this day and age this is being recorded it's not only for this room at this time something must be clear I am NOT going to revisit issues such as the nature of institutional racism or white privilege. It's not that those things aren't important however the idea that those things and their reversal are key to addressing black poverty is an opinion, not a truth. And it's an opinion with which I violently disagree. So we can think about white privilege as we certainly are lately. We can think about institutional racism. We can think about what you might even call white supremacy, but those are very large, knotty, and elusive issues. And to eliminate those things would be such a massive task that it would take so long that to concentrate on those things, rather than things that are more on the ground, is, if you ask me, inhumane, an analogy that I'm working out right now, so it's going to be a little bit rough. It's as if your 10-year-old daughter got caught in the rain, and she comes in wet, and you decide that what you're going to do about her having been caught in the rain is try to eliminate rain rather than teaching her not to go out in it. So, we're not gonna talk about institutional racism. I don't think we can fix that anytime soon. What we can fix much sooner is black poverty. Okay, here we go. One, two, and three, this is one. The first thing that I think will make a major dent in black poverty is to eliminate the war on drugs. And that's not just because that is a particularly favorite subject of mine. It's because it really does apply directly to this problem. So never mind that the war on drugs is a failure. I mean, that's, that's an ineluctable fact. From 2006 to 2010, heroin overdoses went up 45% amidst a war on drugs that during that time had been going on for over 40 years. Hopeless. So, first of all, it doesn't work. Second, never mind that the war on drugs is what creates the sort of thing that leads to episodes such as what happened in Ferguson. As I argued in Time a few months ago, if we look at the entire trajectory of what happened between Michael Brown and Darren Wilson, the key point is what led Michael Brown to have the oppositional attitude towards Wilson that he had. And wait, as I said in Time magazine, that attitude was justified. He was justified in his dismissal of Wilson and what he clearly felt initially as an inappropriateness in that man's authority. Where that came from was the way the police had been treating that community for years, and in terms of the militaristic nature of it, that traced to the war on drugs and its effect on all sorts of communities like those. So, never mind that the war on drugs does create that kind of chip on the shoulder, which I think is justified in a lot of black men that can lead to such grievous consequences as those more important, is this. When welfare was reformed to be limited to five years back in 1996, it did wonders for black child poverty because it was a major benefit to black women who had been on welfare before. For five years, great. But the old policy where you were on welfare and no one cared whether you got a job, that deeply harmed black communities. There were people at the time who thought that black women would wind up shivering on subway grates. That was reasonable, as it happened, and thank God, they were wrong. And I'm aware of no record of any black women who've been affected by welfare reform who resent it. It hasn't been a magic bullet, it hasn't created a new middle class, but it's certainly a heck of a lot better than the way it was. However, welfare reform has largely improved the lives of women. At this point, we also need to get to men, because half of human beings are men. And that has been more difficult over the past 20 years. Now, what does the war on drugs have to do with that? It's delicate to talk about, but nevertheless, I think it's true. The war on drugs discourages black men who have been dealt a bad hand by life from getting legal work. It's as simple as that. If you've gone to a terrible school, you haven't had a great life. You live in a very isolated community. School isn't really working very well for you. You haven't had the benefit of horizons to think about where you could go. Well, what are you gonna do in terms of work? I think most of us in that situation would either be tempted or would have a sibling who would be tempted to maybe do a kind of work that is done within your community, by people who you know of your social class and your color, who speak the language that you do, where there's always a looming promise that you might get rich, you probably won't, but you could, and you can keep the wolf from your door. There's a factoid that's general now that drug dealers don't get rich, sure, but you might keep the wolf from the door. It's tempting, it's there. I can honestly say that if I grew up in a black inner city community, the person that I am would probably have chosen that Overgoing and getting some sort of grueling legal work with the idea that I had to do that for a while and build job skills. It's a perfectly natural decision. However, what creates that is the war on drugs because the reason you can keep the wolf from the door is because drugs can be sold at a markup because they're illegal if you couldn't sell them for that markup then nobody could make a living selling drugs on the street and therefore the only choice for a person would be to make the best of what is unfortunately the worst and seek legal employment that's the way it used to be so this is not science fiction that's the way it used to be before the war on drugs. One of the oddest things if you read ethnographies of black communities before the war on drugs is that as hideous as that world before the civil rights movement was you can go into even inner-city what we would call black communities 93%, 94% of black men of whatever degree of education work you had to. Now I'm not saying that any of that society was utopia but that one part of it was There was no such thing as making a living by what a typical newspaper will call odd jobs and getting by. No, you you had to get a job. And what's important about getting a job, this is not some sort of anti-Macassar moralism here, what's important about getting a job is that you start in a lowly job, and then you work your way up, you have job skills, and after a while you're much less likely to be poor than you are if you're slinging drugs on the street and likely to either be killed, or if not that, spend a good portion of your young life in prison. Poverty is inevitable. So, the war on drugs is what creates that. It creates this endless temptation. There's a static in our discourse about this, which is a notion that the reason that a black man in that position sells drugs is because there's no work available. It's just not true. The latest Ripple in that vein, I think, is Alice Goffman's new book, On the Run, newish book, which is about the situation for black men in an inner-city community in Philadelphia. The general implication of On the Run, which in itself is a great read, is that what's going on with these men is that there are no jobs for them and so they have to sell drugs and get in trouble with the law. That's just not true and it's not a matter of just sitting at a barbecue and grumbling that it's not true it's documented academically by countless people almost none of whom are on the right people who are ordinary liberal academics have shown again and again a very unfortunate problem which is that for underserved poor black men and increasingly today not black men but the documentation is particularly strong on black men you can be selling drugs and the like despite the fact that work is available. No one wants to talk about that but that's true of a lot of things. This is true. It goes on and on. Alfred Young, if you want to look at a particularly useful presentation of this sort of thing. Alfred Young for the record is black and he has documented that for many black men there is a sense that work doesn't work if it doesn't respect their dignity there are problems with knowing how to show up on time, et all these things are understandable, but it's not that work wasn't there. Jolene Kirschman, Katherine Neckerman, Harry Holzer, Philip Moss, Chris Tilley, James McPartland, J. Henry Braddock, it goes on and on. This is proven. It's there. Someone else, Lawrence Mead, political scientist at NYU, has shown this as well. It's a literature that one does not wish to read because the black men that we're talking about in particular will quite articulately say, oh, of course there's work. It's not that there's no work. There are other reasons. William Julius Wilson, who is the famous black sociologist at... Harvard, he is an empiricist, and his books are ones that attempt to show that the reasons for all of this are what we call structural. But even in his work, you can look at when work disappears, right there, in many of the men that he interviews, they'll say, no, there is work, but it's an hour and a half away, and I'd rather not, which contrasts with people who in 1930 and 1940 were traveling two hours away to jobs. It's nothing. 1930 was a terrible time, but that difference shows that just because the work is 90 minutes away doesn't mean that it's somehow inaccessible. We're used to hearing that now, but that's not what that same boy's grandfather thought. It's something that's going on today. Sudhir Venkatesh here at Columbia, sociologist, has another book that is a great read in itself, Gang Leader for a Day and we learn about what goes on intimately in the lives of drug dealers and if you read between the lines you can see and I found this at three places in that book that there was work available. One of the kingpins that he depicts had a job before and he lost the job not because it was taken away from him it was because of other kinds of factors that are difficult to think about. So I think we need to think about the war on drugs in those terms There are many reasons one might want to eliminate it, but if it were eliminated, one of the best results would be that it would allow poor black men to show what they're made of. They'd get jobs. Their lives wouldn't be perfect any more than black women's have become perfect after welfare reform. But it would certainly be a heck of a lot better than the situation now. People work when they absolutely have to, if that was the only kind of job available, we would see black men going back to the way realities were in even underserved black communities before the war on drugs. So that's the first point. Second point, and this is going to seem a little arcane, but I really do think it matters. Poor black people's children are not taught to read properly. This is a really serious issue. It's not written about enough because it's not dramatic. You can't film it. Nobody's gonna make a movie about reading pedagogy. So this tends to go under the radar, but it's very important. We know what teaches poor kids, including black kids, how to read quickly and well. We've known for over 40 years, and it has nothing to do with the kinds of things that education school orthodoxy proposes, such as letting the children fidget or adding music to the lessons or making things relevant, etc. All those things are very kind hearted, but their effectiveness is spotty, whereas this is perfectly effective. It is a method that was developed by Siegfried Engelmann back in the 1960's and it's called Project Follow-Through and it was an extension of Head Start, it was part of that grand old project called the War on Poverty and Siegfried Engelmann discovered what makes poor black kids, not middle class, poor black kids read. it compared nine methods, even back then there were nine different approaches to doing this sort of thing. Nine methods and tracked their results over seven years 75,000 kids. So this is a serious study not some one flash in the pan that somebody pulled one afternoon. 75,000 people kindergarten through third grade and this method that he came up with worked the best. There was a half-day preschool in Champaign-Urbana in Illinois and it was shown that even for poor kids and this includes poor black kids and there were a lot of them that with this particular method kids in overwhelming numbers were entering kindergarten reading on a second grade level that's quite amazing considering the sorts of failures that are now considered ordinary, which were already evidencing themselves in the 1960s. The mean IQ, if we think that that has any value, of kids who had been given this instruction method had jumped 25 points. That's a lot of points when it comes to IQ. It wasn't only in the 60s that it was studied. Siegfried Engelmann did this same kind of approach in the 70s and into the 80s, and it was always the same. It was very simple, and you're wondering, well, what is this magic method? The magic method goes under the name of direct instruction and quite simply it's phonics based it's kind of boring it's based on syllables it's based on teaching children how to read portions of words one bit at a time and putting them together now that may sound like what it is to learn how to read but it's getting to the point where there's so many other ways that people are quote unquote taught to read that that sounds a little bit little rascals But this method, particularly as stringently as Engelman applied it, if you actually use his script, it works. But instead, there's this notion that it's progressive to have students taught with the whole word method, where they're taught to recognize words. Now, that works very well if you essentially grow up reading in a book-lined home. That works very well for middle class kids. It doesn't work in homes where print is basically non-existent except for perhaps the Bible and what you see on a TV screen. For kids like that, they need to be, well, taught how to read. It worked for a long time before. In the 60s, the idea started to become that there was something different needed. Now often today, I'm rehearsing what some people who are in the education field will consider a tired debate, often today it's said that, no, what we need is a combination of direct instruction, phonics-based methods, and the whole word method. No, that's not an argument. Nobody has ever shown that a combination of those two methods is better than using phonics alone. It's this kind of thing. When you talk about combination, and especially when you do this with your hands, often just doing that with the hands is thought to be an argument, and you want to agree. If somebody does this with their hands, you, you, you want to go like this. But as often as not, the combination is not really the reality. It's unpleasant sometimes to get into an argument. You like the idea of kumbaya and everybody making nice. Sometimes that's not what helps people. The direct instruction method would be what teaches black kids to read. Example from recently, 2001 in the Richmond district in Virginia, black kids were doing absolutely abysmally in reading below sixth grade. Direct instruction was brought in And by 2005, three out of four kids were passing the third grade reading test. There was no creativity necessary. There was was nothing necessary about having high expectations and all those beautiful slogans that we're used to that never seemed to create any kind of change. It was this method. And meanwhile, these kids were outscoring wealthy white kids a county over who were not being given direct instruction. So it needs to be there. Now, why am I talking about this? It's not that I have a particular interest in reading pedagogy. That's not what linguists do. It's because if you're somebody who, after a certain age, moves your lips when you read, if that's the best you can do by a certain age and your brain is gradually losing its plasticity, which happens after about 13 or 14, then you're cooked if you haven't been taught to read properly and you're somebody who would really rather not deal with print then you're more likely to drop out of school or even if you don't you might as well have in terms of what you got out of it and in terms of community college which you're gonna need more than ever these days in order to have a decent middle-class existence without real college and I think that that's a wonderful thing even community college is gonna be tough for you because you can't read well, you don't like reading. Probably nobody in this room is the sort of person for whom print is as unpleasant as it is for somebody who hasn't been taught to read well. All of us are probably kick-ass readers, but you have to imagine it probably helps to have spent some time with somebody who would rather not read a menu. Not that they can't, but they'd rather not, especially a densely printed one such as you get in a New York diner. I've seen that. Or someone who you gradually realize listens and watches the news instead of ever reading it because really they'd rather not read. That is a person who probably will only ever do so well. Too much in this life it happens that poor black kids are taught to read in such a way that that's the best that they ever do. So Not observing direct instruction as the method that is used preferably in every inner city or every underserved black and Latino community. That is an injustice. It needs to change because if Siegfried Engelmann's work, and he's still alive, he has a website, you should write him. If his work were better, if his work were better addressed and his work were mainstreamed, then fewer black people would be poor. Third and final thing, and this is the hardest one to talk about. I have never even discussed it with my mouth. I've written about it here and there, but this is a tough one. I've never said this, and it's early, and I have a two-month-old, and so you know how much sleep I've gotten, but I'm gonna try this the best that I can. In two-thirds of America, every second mother under 30 is single. That is the figure for these days. So in two-thirds of America every second mom is raising her child or probably children alone. And you know what? That's not going to change. That cannot be fixed. I'll get to it. There's another statistic. In America, sixty percent of births are unplanned. That can change and it must because it has a lot to do with black poverty. Now, if we're talking about the fact that in, for example, poor black communities, although this is becoming something that's true of poor white communities every bit as much, if we talk about that, the idea that single parenthood is a norm rather than something that happens occasionally, there's an orthodoxy that says that it's because the economy is lousy for men and therefore they are no longer good marriage prospects. It's not true. That simply doesn't work and it's easy for us to see why. During the Great Depression births went down. They went down more in poor black communities than white ones. It's because the economy was bad. People decided to have fewer children. That seems to make sense to us now. Now, let's say the economy is bad now. Well, wouldn't you expect people to have fewer? This was also true in other financial panics before the Great Depression. There have been pieces recently by um, Ross Douthat in The Times, by Kay Heimowitz, who I believe is here, and Jordan Weissman in Slate that give you good handy statistics on all of this. So it's not, it's not the economy, it's, that's not what it is. It's something that's harder to talk about, which is culture. Now, that's a word that is difficult to use in 2015 because it's been accreted with negative associations to say culture sounds like you're putting people down. So let's get rid of that word and let's bring in a substitute. In 2015, let me say that it's a matter of norms. Norms have changed now. 20 years from now, that word is going to be accreted in the same way, and we'll need a new one, but this is 2015. Norms have changed, and specifically, it's no longer a sin to have a child outside of marriage. And you know what? In many ways, that's fine. If you read an old novel where some poor woman is shunned because she has a child outside of wedlock, well, nobody would want to return to that. In any human community, of course, there will be situations. So, it's no longer a sin to have a child outside of marriage. That's fine in a way. However, it is not a good thing that the one parent home in a certain kind of community is now considered a norm. That's not a good thing. It's counterproductive because it tends to foster impecuniousness, i.e. poverty. Very simple. There's nothing moralistic about saying that poor couples should wait until they have kids. Any child would wonder why if a couple didn't have any money yet or any job skills they had kids, and especially more than one, any child would wonder. That's not moralistic. There's a cultural or a norm-related problem there that we need to address. Nobody's doing anything wrong deliberately. There's no blame here, but that still means that still something needs to change. And more, a single person who's poor and has no job skills shouldn't have kids yet. Might happen by accident, but it shouldn't be a norm. And notice I said person. A single person who's poor and doesn't have job skills, there are all sorts of things they can be doing, but the children you would think would be postponed as they typically were in the past a new norm about that is counterproductive because if the poor person or couple have a child or children then that couple are most likely or those persons when they separate which they probably will if they don't happen to be married and even then they probably will there's gonna be poverty and then the child is going to grow up in poverty and is more likely to be poor themselves. And so what this means, and this is again you don't want to talk about this because it's so accreted with associations, but in this society we among the chattering classes are inclined to discuss say, the poor single mom who doesn't have job skills in particular, who has two or three children, and has a hard time getting solid work because it's so hard to find a job that can accommodate the needs of somebody who has three small children. Now, in the present tense, in itself, that is a problem. Everything possible should be done for the children, and everything possible should be done for those women because you can't reverse what has happened. But, but, to discuss the fact that that person has those children as a matter of something as blank as her reproductive choices... That's the mark of a very immature society. That euphemism is as opaque as the sorts of things that you read about in the culture of dueling in the 19th century. It's like thinking about what created the English Civil War and what the subtle attitudes and disputes were. You wonder why people were at each other's throats. We cannot call that reproductive choice. Again, any child would wonder why. We have to think about it. What is the solution? How can we make it so that we don't have children in that situation. Now, it isn't putting your finger in the face of somebody who already made those decisions, but how can we keep that from happening? Now, the solution is most certainly not to teach people to get married. And I may be stepping on some toes and saying that here, but we've tried that. Well, I was never anything I tried, but that has been tried for the past 30 years. It doesn't work. We are not going to tell working class and poor people that they need to enter the bonds of matrimony. It simply won't work. We have to think about how that sounds. We're telling people from our studies as we drink our tea that you need to stand up in front of people and pledge that you will be together for the rest of your lives. You need to have a wedding. It hasn't worked, it's not. Going to work. And so we need to let go of the idea that people are going to get married even after there's already a child. That that horse has left the barn. I think that to anybody in the position to hear that sort of advice, it would be kind of like, (laughs) I know somebody who um, is deeply Christian and on a college campus likes to urge their fellow undergraduates towards chastity and he uses that particular word, that word has redolences about it. It's not rhetorically effective. Marriage is the same thing. That won't work. So there must be some other solution. Telling people to have more abortions will not work. Abortion goes against the religious feelings of most black American and Latino people in particular. So that's not gonna work either. Obviously what we need to prevent the sort of situation that, say, a Barbara Ehrenreich describes for just the working poor in general, is we need long-acting, reversible contraception to be available for free or close to it to any woman who wants it. It's as simple as that. We need people who are poor and have no job skills to be able to not have children as easily as possible. Most of these children are not planned. The issue is that the children shouldn't happen until somebody plans them. Not moralistically saying this, they shouldn't because those children if unplanned and born to couples or persons of that level of skills are going to be poor. And so in order to counteract black poverty there are all sorts of things we can talk about in terms of the structure of America but more to the point Larks, as they're called, very simply, you know, long-acting, reversible contraceptives should be something that anybody interested in black America should be obsessively interested in. Now, some people might say, "You sound like you're talking about sterilization." No. For one thing, reversible. And also, black women in poor communities like these. St. Louis actually had an experiment that almost sounds too good to be true. 75% of the black women in these communities wanted the larks when they were presented with them and the ones who use them had an 80% drop in pregnancies. That's good. It shows that there should be these devices used in frankly any poor community. Simple as that. It works has nothing to do with Christian moralism or anything like that. But childbearing can't be an accident. Isabel Sawhill at Brookings actually has a beautiful quote on this. She says, the old social norm was don't have a child outside of marriage. The new norm needs to be don't have a child until you and your partner are ready to be parents. Whether or not it was a realistic norm in the past, it is now precisely because newer forms of contraception make planning a family so much easier. That's just, that's just truth. That's not Democratic. That's not Republican. That's just truth. And until that is attended to we're gonna have poverty in black communities to a degree that we all find dismaying. So in conclusion, in an America where men had no black market tempting them away from work and putting them in jail, where all women had larks until they actively wanted kids, and where all poor kids were taught to read properly and quickly, there would be a great deal less black poverty. Those three things. Now, I want to revisit something. This is important. It's easy to think because we all have various aspects of poverty that we think about the most. It's easy to think that I'm oversimplifying in naming those three things, but I think for most people who would say that it's oversimplifying to reduce it to those three things. What they really mean is that I have not talked about the evils of institutional racism and white privilege, but I must restate I don't think the elimination of those things is necessary to keeping people from being poor. And I think that because of experiences I've had seeing certain things happen that make black people less poor. The idea that the main thing we need to think about is eliminating institutional racism is an argument, but it's not a truth, and as I said, it's an argument with which I disagree. I think that my suggestions would render black people less poor in a society that would continue to be capitalist, that would continue to be stratified, that would continue to be politically ossified, and yes, it would continue to be, to various degrees, racist, but many fewer black people would be poor in it, Poverty would be an increasingly race-neutral issue. And therefore, I think black America and America would be better. Thank Thank you. Am I supposed to take questions? Any questions, we can take one or two. Where do I look for them? Uh, Just to raise your hand. I'm hearing a voice from Bangladesh. (laughs) (laughs) They do exist. Um, Often they're called, one example of them is IUDs, but now even that is accreted with associations and so one avoids saying it. They're around, the question is whether a person in a given state or a given community can get them and keep getting them for very little money or none. And so these are the sorts of questions that come up with issues such as the Hobby Lobby debate and it does become a Republican versus Democrat issue. But yes, they exist and so larks are not a magic Jetsons device. It's just that there are unfortunate arguments against them being as mainstreamed as they should be, and you know, to have a lark is hardly as expensive or as complex as having a pacemaker install. And they should be mainstreamed. They really, they're not that expensive, and if everybody had access to them, I think it would change America's terrain in many very welcome ways.
2: Uh, just following through with that, um, I think the problem with the Lark's argument is that first step. In many communities, large, IUDs and implants, implants are much more agreeable to, uh, to some clients uh, than IUDs, uh, uh, are available at very low cost or free, and the barrier, or one of the major barriers, seems to be convincing Uh, Women to take that first step Um, Having taken it I completely agree with you the the levels of satisfaction are very high Uh, But the challenge is convincing people to take that first step inertia is very powerful and getting pregnant is very easy Uh, Any thoughts on how to persuade? uh, uh, People to consider larks
1: yes, The reason that it can be difficult to persuade is partly because it's not talked about enough. A lot of persuasion is repetition. A lot of persuasion is a kind of rhetorical charisma that, for example, I lack, but that many black community representatives would have. And unfortunately, there is a misimpression that what one devotes one's rhetorical passion to in many communities is for example police brutality which is a very real issue however i think the war on drugs point that i made would largely address that and leave more energy for thinking about things that actually address on the ground conditions it's just a matter of what one emphasizes and so for example i completely understand why today there is so much discussion of Michael Brown and Eric Garner. However, there should long have been just as much discussion as to what instead is euphemized by people who call themselves speaking for black people as reproductive choices. And in the black community, frankly, often not talked about at all. It's just not stressed as much. If people were made to understand what the repercussions could be, then I think that they would. People live their lives all of us from day to day. and if the norm that you've seen from day to day is that at a certain rather young age you start having kids because that's what the norm is then naturally that's what you'll do and that might even make you think well no I don't want to have an implant because then how would I be like my sister or my cousin that's not a difficult misimpression to cut through but I don't think that most people who call themselves addressing what black people need talk about it enough. We would have to talk about that as much as many people are interested in talking about the more viscerally dramatic issues. That can change. It's just a matter of making the point. We've barely begun. Uh,
0: last question over here. Uh, uh, to what extent has the New York Board of Education embraced
1: uh, these ideas about reading? Because with all the talk about pre-K and all this other stuff, and all the news of I've ever watched, I haven't heard this mentioned once. It's absolutely disgusting. It has not been addressed in any real way, and it's because... No, I have, I have to, despite that I'm on this land. At a school like Teachers College, or just about any educational school, the emphasis in discussing how to teach kids to read is on a notion that it requires some sort of alchemy or magic, that social concerns and making people good social activists is going to be part of the issue, that you have to make it relevant, that you might want to have children choosing their own books, et cetera, et cetera. All of this seems humane. However, none of these things are proven to work in serious testing, and somebody like Engelman ends up just being drowned out because he was a very much ju- is a very much just the facts ma'am kind of person. And so instead, you get very well-intentioned people who are caught up in this. And so the idea is that there has to be this mixture, but it's not really because it's been shown that the mixture works, it's because the idea of it being a mixture feels good and... and this, is, this is the hardest thing. I, I have never said this, either in print or verbally, but it's true. I've heard from some teachers that teaching with direct instruction isn't as exciting as teaching these other methods. It's kind of boring teaching kids to read. Ab-ca-di-do. And I've been told by some very good teachers that if I had to do just this, I don't know if I would want to keep my job. I'm not sure I have an answer to that one because, frankly, that's the way reading was taught in 1945 and 1955. I guess those teachers stayed in their jobs partly because America was still so sexist that those were some of the only jobs they were going to get. But unfortunately, we know how to teach those kids to read. It doesn't make it through because the charismatic figures who call themselves representing education for poor kids are not open to a method that is so directly practical. Isn't that a damn shame? But unfortunately, no. That's why you haven't heard about it. I've been told that I'm no longer allowed to answer any any questions. So thank you very much.